All right, it's 3.02. So again, welcome everyone. I'm Tim Murgo. I'm the chair of education committee for CHEST. I will be moderating this meeting as a representative of CHEST COVID-19 task force. By the way, if you don't know, we started these webinars back in March. They happen on a weekly basis. I believe this is our 13th event and the focus today will be on bronchoscopy and tracheostomy during the pandemic. Our panel today is comprised of experts in these procedures representing three societies, CHEST, the AABIP and AIPPD. The panelists have um, all co-authored these statements on bronchoscopy and tracheostomy in COVID, which were recently published in um, the CHEST journal. So it's my pleasure to introduce the panelists. Dr. Carla Lam is the Director of Interventional Pulmonary at Leahy Clinic and Medical Center. Dr. Lem has co-authored both the bronchoscopy and the tracheostomy statements, and today she's representing the ABIP, for which she's also the secretary treasurer, part of the executive committee for this organization. Dr. Christine Argento is an assistant professor of medicine and thoracic surgery and the director of interventional pulmonary and program director of the IP fellowship at Northwestern University in Chicago. Dr. Argento has co-authored the tracheostomy statement, and today she's representing the AIPPD, for which she's also the secretary treasurer, part of the executive committee for the AIPPD. Now we have Dr. Raid Alalawi, who's a clinical associate professor at the University of um, Arizona in Phoenix. He's also the PCCM program director and director of IP at the Brenner, Banner University uh, Medical Center. Today, um, Raid Alalawi is representing CHEST as the senior author of the bronchoscopy statement. And then we have Dr. Luis Angel, who is a professor of medicine and cardiothoracic surgery and the director of lung transplantation at NYU Langone Medical Center in New York City. Dr. Angel is here on behalf of CHEST as one of the lead authors of the tracheostomy statement. If we can go to the next slide. And next, please. Uh, there are no conflicts of interest in regards to the two statements discussed today. Please, next slide. So the goal today is to provide an overview of these two expert panel reports on bronchoscopy and tracheostomy during COVID. We also want to review and share a few technical tips and strategies for performing this procedure safely and effectively in COVID patients and non-COVID patients during, um, during this pandemic. I trust that we'll have the chance to discuss all relevant questions, but if not, please go to Chess Journal website where you'll find the two statements free of charge. Uh, can you go to the next slide, please? This is the first statement that came out, the bronchoscopy one, I believe was the end of April. First author, Dr. Wahidi, Dr. Carla Lam is the third author, with Dr. Lalawi as a senior author. Again, free of charge at the uh, chess journal. And the next one, please, is the tracheostomy statement, which was released at the end of May, um, with Dr. Lam as the and Dr. Desai from AIPPD as the first authors and Dr. Luis Angel and myself representing uh, uh, as co-chairs uh, representing CHEST. Next slide. In terms of workflow, we'll start with an overview of the Bronx statement. Then we'll have a discussion and Q&A session based on your questions. 
And then we'll do exactly the same for the tracheostomy paper for the rest of the hour. So with, uh, without any other um, comments, uh, I'm gonna get started. And Dr. Lam, Dr. Lalawi, are you ready to start your presentation? Yes. So the next 10 minutes, I'm going to actually, with Dr. Lawali, going to go over the bronchoscopy during COVID and try to give some take-home messages, really re reflecting the statement piece. And I want to give special thanks to our chair, Momen Wahidi, who actually uh, contributed a lot of the slides that we'll utilize today as part of our chair of our uh, statement paper. Next slide, please. So we really sought to look for answers to questions that we were seeing quite rapidly come about as COVID uh, came to hit the US and as the surge evolved. And what we look to do is to try to find a methodology that could look at the evidence that currently exists. And we, there were approved panelists. We had a multi-specialty group of uh, panelists, including respiratory therapy, infectious disease, and pulmonologists and bronchoscopists and intensivists who would look at these questions and kind of weigh the literature. It was a Medline search. It was very systematic, looking for relevant literature. And we found that there was often a paucity of literature. And we reflected a lot on the SARS epidemic from 2003 and other viral pandemics to reference and try to extrapolate uh, data from. We took on a PICO question format, and then we, where we did not have evidence, where it didn't exist, we went on to try to form a consensus, a voted on consensus with a modified Delphi process. So just to understand the methods behind the statement piece. Next slide. So just getting right into the guidelines, we ultimately came with recommendations of about six items. And and I think these are certainly clinically very relevant. So one of the guidelines that we established was when patients with suspected or confirmed COVID infection are undergoing bronchoscopy, we suggested that healthcare workers in the procedure and recovery rooms use either specifically an N95 respirator or a powered air purifying respirator, um, one or the other. And it really ranked as an ungraded consensus-based statement. Remarks that also came about from looking at the data was that patients, not, I mean, not patients, but healthcare workers should also wear other enhanced personal protection, which really involves a face shield, gowns, and gloves, in addition to the N95 or the PAPR. And important to discard the N95s after the procedure is completed. Next slide. The other thing that was looked at in terms of initial testing, as we all know in the beginning, uh, the availability of testing, the sensitivity of the testing, all became kind of an evolution as we looked to diagnose COVID and manage these patients. And we looked at the, really the, the most commonly available test was the reverse transcriptase PCR uh, obtained nasopharyngeally with a sensitivity of about 70%. Next slide. This was also interesting. It was published very early on in March um, as the pandemic rolled on. And it was out of China looking at over a thousand specimens and 200 or so patients who had COVID positive infections. And it really broke down with the available specimens that were collected, what the positivity rates were. And you can see here in this slide that bronchovillar lavage when performed had a very high sensitivity sputum second to that, then followed by nasal swabs, bronchoscopy brush, pharyngeal swabs, um, stool, 
blood and then urine. But really due to the lack of over of large amounts of data beyond this, the true sensitivity, especially in the beginning, was not clearly known as we uh, rolled into the pandemic. Next slide. The second suggestion was how to, uh, what is the role actually, or is there a role for bronchoscopy as a diagnostic tool for COVID-19 infection? And as we all know, this is a highly aerosol generating procedure, at least it ranks into the category of aerosol generating procedures. And it's important to note that in patients who have suspected COVID-19, we came to the decision of balancing based on the data. It's a balance between making a correct diagnosis, but at the same time protecting the workforce and the healthcare workers when we know that this virus is highly contagious and spread through aerosolization of droplets. And so we came with a recommendation that to suggest that the nasopharyngeal specimen should be obtained as a first line. And that in general, bronchoscopy would not be considered a first line procedure. In the setting of someone who has very severe, however, progressive disease that actually requires an intubation because of that respiratory failure due to the disease, if additional specimens were needed, especially in the case scenario where the nasopharyngeal swab, for instance, was negative, but the patient was critically ill, got intubated, and there was still a high clinical suspicion of COVID, then getting a lower respiratory tract specimen uh, seemed to be the next logical choice. And the question then was, was there superiority or any differences between a BAL, for example, obtained bronchoscopically versus that of an endotracheal aspirate using, uh, and again, a non-bronchoscopic approach? And so, and then additionally, there are patients certainly who came in with possible COVID, their COVID test was negative, and you're looking to confirm or rule in or rule out the disease, or they had another diagnostic uh, diagnosis that required further information to make a diagnosis that would be definitive. And the rationale behind this is again, that bronchoscopy is an aerosol generating procedure. We always wanna minimize the risk of infecting the healthcare workers, especially when a patient presents acutely where they may be more infectious. And then lastly, trying to balance, you know, taking the best care of the patient while not infecting the healthcare workers where you overwhelm the workforce because they have now become infected. Next slide. This is just an example of some of the information that came out again. Um, there's been um, a tsunami of information even since the publication of the statement piece and we're continuing to learn more. Uh, but just important to have a, a sense of when a patient is exposed, it may be five days or so before they actually develop symptomatology. And when they're symptomatic, that's when they certainly are the most infectious. And then after approximately 10 days or so, their, ability, their amount of shedding of the virus markedly goes down. And this is just reflecting again, the communicability of the disease, especially in the early uh, phases of understanding the disease. Next slide. This was actually, again, published out of China, looking at um, the community spread of COVID-19 in patients who are undergoing bronchoscopy, who may be asymptomatic, and looking at what the healthcare workers were doing or not doing that might have led to prevention of infection versus propagation of infection in this setting. And they simply looked at staff and high-risk units, which were respiratory units, infectious disease, ICUs, who actually wore the N95 and washed their hands quite frequently, 
versus staff in less high-risk wards who did not wear surgical masks and wash their hands occasionally. So two significant extremes in, in practice and behavior. And despite a higher exposure in the high-risk units, none of the 278 staff, which were nurses and doctors, who wore the N95s became infected in this report. So it, it speaks to the significant uh, preventive measures that can be taken simply by wearing an N95 um, and hand washing, but it wasn't discerned in this study um, the degree of weight put on the N95 versus uh, washing of the hands. Next slide. So the third recommendation or guideline suggestion was you know, performing bronchoscopy in asymptomatic patients in an area where community spread of COVID-19 is present. Now in the beginning, in March or so, there were certainly many areas throughout the country who did not have initially a high prevalence. Was that because we didn't have the testing to de determine the prevalence possibly and likely so, but at the, in the beginning, there was actually consideration that some areas did not have a high um, prevalence. But now we know it's pretty much universally uh, there in, in all states in the US. So when an asymptomatic patient presents for a bronchoscopy in an area where there's a high likelihood or at least a high presence of community spread with COVID-19, which is now pretty universal, we suggest that healthcare workers in the procedure room not only wear, the N they wear an N95 or a PAPR as opposed to surgical mask, again, ungraded consensus-based statement, but in addition, just uh, bringing home the point, the need for enhanced PPE, at the very least, specifically the N95, a face shield, gloves, and gown uh, should, should be worn in these settings. Next slide. Um, and again, another thing to be thinking about when performing bronchial asymptomatic patient when COVID is present in the community, uh, should an asymptomatic patient actually be tested for COVID-19 prior to bronchoscopy? Well, in, certainly now and even certainly in the beginning, we had to go with the presumption that everyone potentially could have COVID and therefore even in the asymptomatic individual, uh, knowing that they, um, it was highly likely they could be asymptomatic and have COVID, that the rationale between that by doing testing prior would be in any patient who needs a bronchoscopy, a highly aerosol generating procedure. Um, if you did not know they had COVID and you had not tested them, it certainly put other people at risk in the post, in, not only in, during the procedure itself, but also in patients or, or the healthcare providers who are taking care of the patients in the recovery area as well. And so it just, Again, now it seems pretty matter of fact that we're doing this, but in the beginning, these things had to be worked out. And so that patients who would come into contact with any asymptomatic COVID-19 positive patient during the post-bronc recovery, you're actually uh, propagating community spread even within a hospital setting. Next slide. I'm going to turn over the next uh, remaining recommendations to my colleague to wrap up on bronchoscopy and uh, in COVID. Thank you. Uh, moving along with the uh, guidelines and, and taking on the testing prior to procedures, uh, performing the bronchoscopy uh, in asymptomatic patients, again, we're saying an area where community transmission of COVID-19 infection is present uh, at the time uh, 
we had areas where uh, COVID-19 was not present or not known or unknown. Uh, but at this time, it's pretty much everywhere. So this applies everywhere uh, in the US, COVID-19 infection is present. We do suggest, uh, again, this was an ungraded uh, uh, consensus-based statement, uh, that testing is performed prior to uh, bronchoscopy. Uh, the idea there is to detect COVID-positive patients and, where possible, postpone that bronchoscopy. Uh, interpreting the test, as was mentioned earlier, the sensitivity of the test still hovers around 70% uh, uh, sensitivity, so you will have false negative tests. And so we suggest that patients with negative results, that the procedure performed using uh, personal protective equipment that include the face shield, gown, gloves, and N95 respirators or purified air purifying or powered air purifying respirators. The procedures are not to be performed with just a surgical mask. And uh, the test, we suggest that the test results are, uh, if they're positive, then postpone all non-emergent uh, uh, bronchoscopies. Next slide, please. So you're gonna see some uh, false, uh, as I said, some asymptomatic patients will be missed on a false negative test and will undergo bronchoscopies. Therefore, uh, we would want to limit bronchoscopies as much as possible. So the agreed upon classification between the uh, chest group and AABIP was classifying uh, bronchoscopies into emergent, urgent, and not urgent bronchoscopies. So in the emergent bronchoscopy, such as those uh, patients uh, with severe or moderate symptomatic tracheal bronchial stenosis, symptomatic central airway obstruction, whether it's endotracheal uh, or endobronchial mass or mucus pluggings, massive hemoptysis uh, or migrated stents, these are classified as emergent. And these will need to be done uh, in a timely fashion uh, using enhanced precautions. Urgent bronchoscopies, where you have lung masses suspicious of cancer, mediastinal adenopathy suspicious of cancer, where a whole lung lavage is needed, uh, foreign object aspiration, mild to moderate hemoptysis, uh, and suspected pulmonary infection in immunocompromised patient. So all of these will guide next steps in therapy. And so these bronchoscopies, both urgent and emergent, saying that these will need to be performed, uh, again, while taking the necessary uh, precautions. Non-urgent bronchoscopies, such as patients with mild tracheal or bronchial stenosis, uh, just for clearance of mucus, uh, high suspicion of sarcoid, uh, with no immediate need to start therapy, uh, somebody with chronic interstitial lung disease, uh, detection of chronic infections, such as uh, MAI, uh, bronchoscopic lung volume reduction, bronchothermoplasty, those for chronic cough and tracheomalacia evaluations, those fall under the non-urgent bronchoscopy and those kind of fall into if you don't need to do it, it can wait, postpone the procedure uh, as much as possible to decrease uh, exposure to the staff and the healthcare workers and the patient themselves who are undergoing the uh, non-urgent bronchoscopy to other, uh, whether it's healthcare workers or other patients who, uh, who are potentially asymptomatic uh, carriers. So the recommendation, again, that's what started at the time uh, where the statement is, Perform urgent and emergent while taking enhanced precautions and where possible, defer non-urgent bronchoscopies. Uh, next slide, please. So that's for somebody who is asymptomatic unknown. Well, when somebody is diagnosed with COVID, we've confirmed COVID, uh, 
when do we do a bronchoscopy that's, when, when it's safe to do bronchoscopies on them, not for a diagnosis of COVID, for other reasons. So somebody has a lung mass, whether it's, uh, it falls into the uh, urgent type of bronchoscopies or somebody with uh, uh, one of the non-urgent but history of COVID, when is it safe uh, to do so? And uh, we looked at literature uh, at the time and very limited information uh, because we're still learning, were and still are learning the natural history of the disease and the viral shedding and, and, and so on. So uh, we had small studies at the time that the PCR test was negative in 90 percent of patients with mild disease. So patients were classified to having mild versus severe disease. Their viral shedding was different. So in mild disease, by day ten, you can have uh, negative RT-PCR, whereas in uh, more severe disease, they can be up to thirty-seven days or even longer. When you look at other uh, specimens other than just sputum, <clears throat> so. Uh, and the characteristic, performance characteristic of the test itself tends to have a significant number of false positive very early on in the disease and on the tail end uh, of the disease. The detection threshold changes, and that too is related to the uh, degree of viral shedding that affects the uh, test performance characteristic. Uh, next slide, please. So our guideline suggestion uh, again, based on an ungraded consensus-based statement here, is in patients with confirmed COVID infection who recover from bronchoscopy, the timing of the procedure is customized based on the indication uh, of the procedure and severity of the COVID infection and time of resolution of symptoms. There is no known exact time, but it is reasonable to say that it's reasonable to wait 30 days from resolution of symptoms with negative uh, uh, RNA tests or uh, PCR tests from nasopharyngeal swabs. At the time of writing this as a side two is we did not have antibody testing readily available. So uh, some of that stuff might have changed or could change since, uh, since this. Um, so the exact time uh, of, start of doing a bronchoscopy in somebody, uh, in somebody with, uh, with active infection is, is a two, to 30, two weeks or 30 days kind of has been the range that was looked at. Next slide, please. So what about patients who need to be diagnosed for uh, lung cancer uh, for diagnosis and staging? There is no exact uh, recommendation as the exact timing or what's ideal. The recommendation is when, it's, when a bronchoscopy is indicated to diagnose or stage or characterize known or suspected lung cancer where there is community transmission of COVID, the suggestion is timely and safe manner. So a timely manner is how soon can you get it done? And when is it reasonable to move to the next step of, uh, of treatment for the patient? So in the remarks, strategies to perform should be developed and taken into account local resources available. So you're gonna make a diagnosis, do you have radiation therapy, do you have surgery available? Are there ICU beds to be uh, available post-surgery? So it's a very local decision at that point. Uh, so uh, re region available diagnostic and therapeutic interventions should be considered, especially in resource-depleted hospitals. Uh, cancer negative, uh, COVID negative cancer patients should be referred to other centers, preserving resources to manage COVID-19 patients uh, to uh, enhance safety of both these patients and others. Uh, again, every effort should be made to provide timely care uh, while balancing safety uh, inconsistency with the kind of 
more of guideline consistent care of lung cancer patients. Next slide, please. So uh, the summary uh, we came up with is this, the patient, uh, physicians searching for bronchoscopy guidance during this time could use these guidelines as general guidance. They need to be adapted uh, to the local situation as, as we mentioned. And this we envisioned as a living document and as more information and more data gets published, uh, these would be updated. Next slide, please. We'll okay. Alright, so thank you, Dr. Lam and Dr. Lalaoi for the nice overview of the statement. There are actually quite a few questions from the participants and as you are presenting the statement, a few questions came to my mind. So hopefully we'll have time to, to cover all of them. But let's start with the audience. So there is um, the first question that came in is regarding intubation for elective bronchoscopies. Do you believe intubation for these bronchoscopies would reduce infection. Any data to support this? So let's say diagnostic bronch, there is a concern for transmission. Do you, in, do you feel like intubation will reduce the risk of infection? And do we have data to support that? Well, um, again, there's, there's very little data. I think this is where you know, get it, gathering the data that we learned from this pandemic will be things that we'll use going forward. But I think that just thinking um, in terms of the pros and cons of intubating versus not intubating, a couple of things to think about. You know, a, certainly a moderate sedation procedure could be cough generating. And so you have to kind of think about what would be the least apt to cause a cough, continued cough generating aerosolization, someone who uh, may have COVID. And you could argue that with intubation, a very controlled environment, cessation of coughing, closed circuit, in a controlled environment with everyone wearing proper enhanced PPE, a negative pressure room, that they may that might allow for a bit more control of that, that variable. But the, there's not definitive data uh, on that. And I'll certainly open it up to my co-panelists to their, for their comments. Yeah, I would say that there is some emerging evidence. It's not, it's not clear that one is necessarily better than the other, but there's a lot coming out from anesthesia about optimal sedation uh, for different aerosol generating procedures, and they don't specify bronchoscopy in particular, but they, they do all seem to um, edge towards using a paralytic um, in order to, to uh, decrease the amount of cough and decrease the aerosol generation. So I think you're on the right path. I think that's the right thought. And I would agree with that. It, it significantly limits the uh, mm -hmm. aerosolization of, uh, during the bronchoscopy and the additional ability to add things like viral filters to the circuit and so on that are being evaluated by anesthesia. Yeah, so that's interesting um, to hear these comments because in um, on the systematic review from 2012, I believe, but data based on the outbreak from 2003, mm -hmm. intubation was actually the procedure with the highest odds ratio for transmission of SARS-1. Uh, now, I suspect uh, 
that was done in different conditions, not a controlled intubation in the operating room or your bronchoscopy suite, but it had an odds ratio for transmission of infection of 6.6, you know, higher even than the tracheostomy at that time. So I think we need to wait for more data before we actually say that, in my opinion, that um, intubating people for elective bronchoscopy in a COVID-positive patient um, is, um, will reduce the risk of infection. Um, girl, thank you. We, I think we need to move on because there are lots of questions here. Another one is regarding the diagnostic yield of bronchoscopy for COVID. Is there an additional advantage of sending COVID RT-PCR from BAL? Any, any idea about the sensitivity, specificity on the BAL sample? And that was actually one of my questions too. Um, is the test standardized for, on BAL samples? It's a great question. Actually, it was one of our, again, recommendations. And again, some of the earlier data that was published, again, published out of JAMA in March of 2020, this year, of course, it looked at BAL. And BAL, at least in this one study, demonstrated the highest sensitivity for COVID when compared to sputum and nasal uh, swabs, nasopharyngeal swabs and down the line. So, um, but there needs to be reproducible and more data. And again, balancing out, um, how does it compare to an endotracheal aspirate? And so some of the things we looked into, we, we actually pulled some of the, look at the, the VAP data to see what was the diagnostic yield by doing lower respiratory tract sampling, just to see if there was standardization. And what we found was there was high variability in how people collected, other than a BAL, how they collected the sample. So there was the BAL, which is really well defined, but then the non-bronch BAL, for example, not to mention the blinded bronch uh, sampling, a blinded specimen via the ET tube versus tracheal aspirate. And you can think about it this way, is that you know, this is a lower respiratory tract infection. Um, it lives primarily in the, in the resp deep respiratory tract. So what we need to have is data determining is, can you have a closed circuit endotracheal aspirate, is that as good as the bronchoscopic BAL? And I don't think we have the data. Uh, I think that will evolve and we will have data to support maybe one over the other. But again, also keeping that um, mindset of how do we minimize aerosol generation and healthcare worker exposure at the same time of getting diagnostic yield that's satisfactory. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Yeah. I also think it's important to think about um, the setting that you're looking at this in. So mm -hmm. patients who are not already intubated, but are maybe admitted to the floor of the hospital, and maybe their viral load is less than an ICU patient. So whether the BAL would, you know, um, would yield a better result in those patients who have a, a lower viral load, presumably, mm -hmm. um, than the ICU or critically ill patients with ARDS. Um, so I think there's a lot of questions here that are not, not answered yet. Mm -hmm. I know at our institution, we've done a lot of bronchoscopy, uh, particularly in the ICU patients, uh, so who were intubated, and there's a really high correlation between the nasopharyngeal swab and the BAL positivity. But again, that's in a very specific ICU population and not necessarily going to carry over to patients who are less critically ill. There are other questions. Thank you, Dr. Argento. There are other questions and I really wanna make sure we're addressing um, our audience's needs. Um, this one I found very relevant and it's a theme. Um, what is the optimal time recommended from the time the COVID test is negative 
to the date of an elective bronchoscopy is scheduled. You, I know you alluded to that in that presentation. Uh, can you please remind us what the time interval is and what kind of evidence do we have to support that statement? So the, uh, the time interval we looked at was uh, primarily, it, it's influenced by the turnaround uh, time of the test itself. So there's going to be obviously uh, that piece to factor in mind. Uh, most recommendations have come at between 48 to 72 hours from the procedure, from the time to procedure you have the test done and the patient is instructed to self-isolate at that time to decrease, obviously, uh, uh, exposure. Okay, thank you. Um, another question here, relevant for practice. How many tests do you perform before bronchoscopy? One or two? Or is one enough to rule out COVID-19? I think it has to be in conjunction with a symptom questionnaire. So it's very important to have not only COVID testing, we typically would test for COVID for an, um, a scheduled bronchoscopy. If they're, we'd do a questionnaire to make sure they're asymptomatic and we would run that list of symptoms to make sure that they're not active, that they haven't had a fever. Um, and that if we do the COVID testing, typically it would be done within 48 hours uh, prior to the defined bronchoscopy. That's, uh, that's one uh, process. Okay, thank you. There is uh, one question regarding devices. Uh, the way I'm reading this, I think, has to do with the type of bronchoscope uh, we're using. So we know that institutions should follow standard high-level disinfection for reusable bronchoscopes. Um, in fact, that actually reminds me, I did read some statements from other societies from around the world um, it's true, they were published in the beginning of the pandemic, but they were recommending um, the use of disposable bronchoscopes during, um, during COVID-19. So can you comment on the utility of such scopes for advanced bronchoscopy procedures? I mean, short of suctioning or BAL, um, is there any data to support the use of these bronchoscopes for our um, diagnostic interventions? You know, I think that um, on a practical level, I think that, you know, again, as long as you're uh, doing a performing high level disinfection, then that should be adequate for killing virus and providing safety with your, with your standard non-disposable scopes. But I think that um, the reality, especially when you're in surge and there is a high demand uh, for potentially interventions. Again, you know, again, bronchoscopy in the in these settings should be very thoughtfully um, decided upon. Not everyone is going to be getting bronchoscopy. That's certainly not what we're advocating. But I think that um, you know, disposable scopes may have on a practical level some utility in that there's um, you're not having to bring in your tower. If you are traveling to a patient, you're not having to travel with a, a, um, a durable piece of equipment that you then have to decontaminate. And that has its own nuances, which can be sometimes challenging. Uh, can be, it can be done, but nonetheless challenging. So that might be an advantage of the disposable scopes in that setting with someone who's COVID positive versus uh, uh, using your permanent tower. All right, you know, I'm losing track of time here. I didn't realize it's 3.37. We do need to move on to the tracheostomy part of the, of the webinar. So um, Dr. Argento, Dr. Lam, uh, please continue your presentation. 
Thank you. So if I could have the next slide, please. And again, this has been an evolution, as has been many things, but the role of tracheostomy in the setting of COVID specifically during the pandemic has really evolved. I think we all ha can recall fairly recently there were pa statement papers coming out from many different societies, surgical and non-surgical, suggesting not to perform trach on COVID patients. And then there was different variations in terms of timing um, to whether, whether or not to do it early versus late. And this paper was really born out of about eight core questions that on a practical level came about. And I, I think the things that we have to think about when we think about the COVID population, it can rapidly fill our ICUs at a very high level of demand for their critical care needs. And that there's so many other factors we have to weigh in when we're thinking about um, caring for a patient, tracheostomy in a COVID pandemic. And I've kind of cited them here, but timing of tracheostomy, what's the infectivity in an aerosol generating procedure for performing this type of procedure among our healthcare providers, uh, working with us in the room, the availability of uh, enhanced protective uh, uh, personal equipment, PPE. Can we do things to augment or alter the technique of the procedures to minimize aerosol aerosolization? When we have volume of patients since when a surge comes, do we have, um, we need to deploy many different providers in sometimes non-conventional ways. And that also adds a stress on the system and the workforce and the institution for supplies. Do you have enough supplies to perform procedures on patients without running out of gears and devices that you may need, not only for the procedure, but for the aftercare? Next slide. So, the other thing that we identified is that when you're building a COVID trach program, we, you know, we call ours a, you know, a COVID task force for trach, you, you know, most of us who are doing tracheostomies, we already have kind of a multidisciplinary team approach to the patients who get a tracheostomy. But when you really build one around a COVID program, you really need to have all hands on deck considering um, your primary critical care team, palliative care, thinking about overall overarching goals of care, infectious disease and infection control, your nursing, your respiratory therapy, speech pathology aftercare, and obviously the procedural team and your airway teams with anesthesia as well in terms of working together to find a very streamlined approach. Next slide. So again, what was the background of the paper? It was very multidisciplinary, three societies, 13 institutions representing 10 of the 20 states in the early phases of COVID here that were most significantly impacted by volume. So a lot of patients being seen with COVID in these systems and it crossed the spectrum of academic medical centers to private practices as well. We used a very um, broad systematic review of the literature, used the modified Delphi to try to come to consensus, or at least to make some suggestions of, of recommendations. Next slide. So these are the eight recommendations that we're going to go through them quickly so we can allow for discussion, but I'm gonna move on to the next slide. We'll break them down one by one. Next slide, please. So again, recommendation one, number one or suggestion, we suggest tracheostomy should be considered in COVID-19 patients when prolonged mechanical ventilation is anticipated. And that was a strong consensus. And the things that have evolved, you know, especially early on with COVID, 
therapies were not well established for even treating COVID. So we're even now evolving to how patients perform and respond to therapies that in the beginning were not readily standardized or available, for example. And so prognosis is shifting, those sort of things. And so uh, next slide. The second thing is that, you know, there's really not, there was not sufficient data based on the evidence to really recommend definitively the timing for tracheostomy. But the things that we're learning as we look at the projections of survival in these patients, you know, that first 14 to 21 days is really critical in the sense that patients either evolve to go into multi-system organ failure and have, you know, and, and don't survive or they do survive and then they are dependent on the ventilator uh, without making steady progress to extubate. And then some go on to extubate and then really teasing out, parsing out those patients who will fall into which pathway. And that's still being worked out. The outcomes data is, has yet to be realized and published so we can dissect that a bit more. Next slide. So again, looking at the data, comparing not only timing of tracheostomy, but also technique. You know, the SARS data from 2003 really largely based uh, the use of trach was an so open surgical trach, probably because that was probably more commonly done. And we've evolved with percutaneous tracheostomy and now PDT has kind of taken center stage and is more commonly done. So I think that was the evolution since the last pandemic with SARS. And so when we look at the two techniques, we looked at the evidence and compared them, looking at a number of factors, mostly thinking about aerosolization with technique, that really either technique would be an acceptable option. There would be some advantages, however, to keeping the patient in their ICU room in isolation without having to move them from ICU to OR, so there might be advantages there. And then also um, the technique in which we perform either the surgical trach or the PDT to minimize aerosolization there as well. The bottom line is either technique's acceptable, but just take into account the steps that may be required to further minimize aerosol. Next slide. This is just a table that's in our document that really kind of weighs back and forth the pros and the cons between surgical trach versus percutaneous. And we'll talk a little bit more about nuances of technique, but I think the things to namely consider is how can you minimize um, the aerosolization when you're manipulating the ET tube, regardless of the technique, there's always manipulation of the endotracheal tube ultimately. And that can be one of the more aerosolizing generating components. Next slide. This is again, I won't go into detail with this, but this is for your reference about some suggested best practices step-by-step step, getting you from start to finish when performing tracheostomy, keeping those things in mind and how you, you uh, minimize the aerosol by paralyzing and sedating the patient, minimizing cough, limiting the circuit interruption, making sure the patients can tolerate a period of apnea so that you can, uh, when you're manipulating the ET tube and the, and the cuff, that you can minimize transfer of aerosol based on not having the pen, patient uh, spontaneously ventilating or ventil not ventilated breath ventilating. Next slide. So with that, I'm gonna turn this over to my colleague, Dr. Engel, who was in the heat of the battle in New York. And so with that, Luis, I'll have you take over. Thank you, Carla, so much for this. Uh, so one of the next questions will be about 
who do we do a tracheostomy uh, and what are the criteria to select somebody for a tracheostomy? Scarla mentioned we were here in NYU and just to give you a little bit of an idea of the magnitude of what we face, it's in a matter of seven weeks. We admitted 538 patients on ventilators who survived again the initial admission to the ICU and stay on the ventilator. And of those patients, again, we end up doing tracheostomies in 207 patients. So it was a very significant volume of this. And the question comes, where do we do a tracheostomy and who are the patients that will benefit from this? So it doesn't matter, again, if it's 500 patients or if it's just one patient with COVID. Each one is an individual patient and you have to answer that question for them. So the first thing that we look in terms of the patient criteria is trying to avoid the futility of the procedure. So futility goes two ways. One, that you do the procedure in somebody that is going to die very quickly. Or two, somebody that you do the procedure and is going to come off the ventilator also very quickly. So in terms of the pacing criteria, we were looking into patients that did have very significant extrapulmonary dysfunction. And COVID was very interesting. It wasn't really a lot of multi-organ failure, especially in the early stages. It was almost a pure respiratory failure in most of the patients with a lot of coagulopathy and renal disease later. But it wasn't like the septic patient in five pressures dying. So a lot of these patients, they could have the tracheostomy in that regard, so they didn't require a lot of vasopressors or were in a low dose of vasopressors. And the coagulopathy was a very frequent issue. We did have 50 of our patients on ECMO support that were anticoagulated, so that required a lot of, again, and all of them, we trained them, so it was complicated in that regard. And also for patients with renal disease, that was very common. In terms of the ventilator, I think that we use a very standard criteria, a little bit more aggressive uh, because uh, these patients, uh, they were so hypoxemic. So we were using a PEEP of 12 or less. And also when we were having a FIO2 of 60% or less, respiratory rate of 30 or less, that was a very common rate on many of these ARDS patients and not hyperkamic. So nothing very, very important. Most things for you to remember is just try to avoid the futility both ways, just doing the procedure in somebody that you think is gonna die and don't do the procedure in somebody that you think is going to be extubated very quickly. So from those 560 patients, again, we end up doing tracheostomies in around 40% of the patients, so 60% of the patients, they either die or they got better or they didn't need uh, to have a tracheostomy. Next slide. Uh, some of the key components, at least in our experience, and why we also recommend on the statement, uh, you see there's only three people in the room. So this is not like you go with the entire medical students and the entire team to the room to do these procedures. You want to take senior people with experience and getting this done. Uh, you have one person in charge of doing the actual tracheostomy, one in charge of the bronchoscopy, and the other person in charge of helping with the ventilator and with the again, management of the medications uh, for this. We heavily sedate the patients and also paralyze that is the recommendation also from the statement to decrease the amount of coughing during the procedure. Next. Uh, the, just go back one. Yeah, the modification that we did to the procedure and it was also communicated on the statement and also in a previous publication 
is just trying to decrease the, again, the aerosolization of the virus during the procedure is we go anterior to the endotracheal tube. Uh, we did this, again, in 91% of the patients. We were able to go with this technique. Uh, it's, again, takes a little bit of training to familiarize with this, but it's very doable. Uh, and we were using the standard bronchoscope and the standard tower. Uh, again, the question can be for you use disposable or not. In our situation, we have like uh, two towers available for us and multiple bronchoscopes. And because there were no more bronchoscopies going on in the hospital, we use uh, standard bronchoscopes, which to us was important. This is a risky procedure. You want to have your best equipment in there. Next slide. Uh, then the, once you get into the subglottic space uh, with this technique, the visualization is great, but the key component of this is, as you can see, the endotracheal tube is in place and the cuff is inflated. So you better basically deflate for a, a short period of time when you advance the tube to the carina. The patient is under apneic conditions and not be ventilated. Then you do a standard tracheostomy. In every single case, we were able, with no difficulty, to place the endotracheal tube and the blue rhino around that. So that's good. And the visualization is actually great visualization in this regard. And next slide. Uh, again, it's very important that you coordinate uh, the ventilation uh, during the procedure. Uh, so very often we go in standby, again, for the two key parts. When you are advancing the endotracheal tube, that, that will be a couple of seconds. And then with the tracheal stoma is already dilated. Uh, you just basically deflate the cough, remove the endotracheal tube quickly and advance the tracheostomy. So that period is done under uh, standby on the ventilator. So with that, again, I send it back to you, Carla and Christine. Christine, I think you're up. I think Nope, for a, for a few more minutes so we can take questions because uh, questions keep coming in, guys. We want to make sure we're addressing our participants' needs. Okay. Um, so recommendation four, thank you so much for having me. Uh, we recommended that enhanced uh, personal protective equipment uh, be used to mitigate the risk of healthcare worker-related infection during tracheostomy. Um, this was a strong consensus uh, uh, amongst all of uh, our panel, um, because we know that tracheostomy is an aerosol generating procedure, it poses infection risk uh, to healthcare workers involved in the procedure. Um, there's many places that are using uh, PAPRs, the purified air uh, uh, devices, and, um, and other places are using N95s uh, with face shields. Everybody should have face shields and or goggles. Uh, uh, cap, uh, gown, gloves, shoe covers, et cetera, to minimize exposures. Um, and so this was a strong consensus statement. There is a lot of data coming out to suggest that there hasn't been a lot of, um, of uh, healthcare workers that have gotten infected. And so I think uh, this recommendation holds true for, <clears throat> um, and so using enhanced PPE has been helpful. Next slide. Recommendation number five, uh, location of the tracheostomy procedure. This is uh, clearly a source of debate. Um, and so we suggested in patients with COVID-19 related respiratory failure that tracheostomy be performed in a negative pressure room, preferably in the ICU. And as an alternative, a negative pressure room in the operating room could be used with special attention to minimizing transportation related risk of exposures. 
Um, so the recent recommendations from the CDC would state that airborne infection isolation rooms be used uh, for all aerosol generating procedures, which tracheostomy falls into that. Um, when you think about performing tracheostomies in the ICU rooms, you're minimizing uh, exposure to different staff. Uh, you're not transporting the patient, so you're also minimizing the risk of uh, contamination in the hallways and the elevators and exposing other people. Um, you're also not disconnecting and reconnecting patients to, mul to multiple ventilators, um, and so you're technically reducing certain risks. Uh, however, when you take the patient to the operating room, that's kind of standard practice for open surgical tracheostomies, although certainly mentioned in the SARS and the MERS uh, pandemics, uh, people were doing uh, surgical tracheostomies at the bedside in the ICU room. However, um, it's sometimes a little bit more difficult. The rooms are smaller. It's harder to position the patient. You don't have your usual support staff, um, and so that makes it a little bit more difficult. And really, there is one uh, publication that talks about if you don't have a negative pressure room available, which can happen, especially during surge times, um, you can use um, <clears throat> a strict door policy, meaning that you close and seal the doors with tape, um, and then you use a normal pressure room with HEPA filters, and that could be safe as well. So that's our recommendation number five. Next slide. Recommendation number six uh, is the role of pre-procedure COVID-19 testing, and we do not recommend routine RT-PCR testing, so the nasopharyngeal swabs um, or a lower respiratory sample prior to performing tracheostomy in patients uh, with confirmed COVID-19 related respiratory failure. And as a remark, um, we also didn't find any evidence uh, to support the use of RT-PCR uh, to confirm uh, negative uh, results in patients who had respiratory failure that was not uh, confirmed to be secondary to COVID. Um, and so this is, um, although the RT-PCR would be the standard uh, testing that we would use to, uh, to detect COVID-19, it may not predict, predict infectivity. It can also detect uh, dead virus uh, particles. And so, um, and also it, um, the sensitivity ranges anywhere from 37 to 71%. And so there is uh, some, the test is not a perfect test. Um, also viral shedding can be prolonged. So anywhere up to 55 days. And so is this test gonna actually make a difference? And I think it's really all about your local factors. So if you're going to be performing tracheostomy, you wanna think about if the patient was positive, do you wanna use the enhanced PPE that was discussed previously? I think most people are still using at least N95s, if not PAPRs, again, with the head covering, face shields, um, gowns, gloves, shoe covers, et cetera. Um, and so, and then for patients who were determined not to have COVID, uh, that's a local decision at your institution. If in the ICU at the bedside or in the operating room, you are permitted to perform tracheostomies uh, with standard precautions rather than enhanced PPE. Next slide. Recommendation seven, the role of a multidisciplinary team was discussed. So we recommended that in patients with COVID-19 related respiratory failure, tracheostomy is performed by a team consisting of the least number of providers with the highest level of experience. 
So um, we know that in non-pandemic times, that, in, that implementation of a multidisciplinary team will decrease complications and decrease time to procedure. Um, as both Dr. Lamb and Dr. Angel dis, uh, discussed, you wanna minimize the number of providers in the room. You want the providers performing these tracheostomies on these aerosol, or these aerosol generating procedures on these higher risk patients to be the most um, experienced providers in the hospital if possible to try and again, lower the procedural time and decrease the risk of exposures and complications. And what we've also found is that um, including multidisciplines such as infectious disease, palliative care, uh, the critical care team, obviously the procedural team, um, when discussing tracheostomy can be extremely helpful in trying to decide whether this patient should go forth uh, with a tracheostomy if that's within their wishes and their goals of care. Um, infectious disease can help a lot to determine whether this patient is starting to improve, whether it seems like they will make it or not, um, and maybe the optimal timing when the viral shedding is hopefully lowered. Um, the critical care team is obviously uh, instrumental in trying to lessen the pressors and stabilize the patients enough for you to safely perform this procedure. Okay, next slide. Recommendation eight. Um, so post-tracheostomy care of COVID-19 patients, uh, we suggest that patients be maintained with a closed circuit while on mechanical ventilation with a tracheostomy tube and with inline suction. Um, this recommendation, there's really not much evidence at all published about post-tracheostomy care. Uh, in COVID-19 patients, nor in SARS or MERS patients either. Um, and so most of the evidence out there, what we could find was really to perform the procedure. And while they were located, these patients were located in the ICU, um, but once they have a tracheostomy tube, it's unclear how we should treat them. The only evidence that's really clear um, is that you want to try and maintain a closed circuit, particularly while the patient is on mechanical ventilation. And most institutions are trying to minimize, again, um, exposure to aerosol uh, for all the healthcare workers and to keep the healthcare workers safe. So although there's no specific data, there are some societal guidelines that have been published um, and there's a, a table coming up. Next slide. One thing um, that most institutions have tried to figure out is how to to maintain a closed circuit for patients once they, once they have a tracheostomy, but they're off of mechanical ventilation. So um, this is one example where you have a patient who doesn't have high oxygen requirements where they can be on oxygen uh, just by trach collar, um, what, what would normally be trach collar. So a few liters of oxygen, you can attach your oxygen uh, to the circuit. You've got an inline suction and then you have a viral filter uh, with HME device attached to your tracheostomy tube. In these patients, uh, even if they're off the ventilator, uh, most institutions will try and keep the cuff inflated uh, to try and minimize aerosol generation. Next slide. If your patients have higher oxygen requirements, um, then this is just a slightly different set of tubing um, where you can attach to a high flow nasal cannula type of device um, and get higher flows of oxygen. <clears throat> Again, you have an inline suction um, and an HME with viral filter 
uh, attached. And so this also maintains a closed circuit. Uh, most institutions would also try to um, try to expedite a decannulation protocol um, so that patients will uh, not generate aerosols uh, for prolonged periods of time with tracheostomies. Um, and you wanna minimize things like tracheostomy tube changes, inner cannula changes, at times with your cuffs deflated, all of those things can cause aerosols to be generated. When the respiratory therapists, nurses, or providers are in the rooms with these patients during these aerosol generating procedures, they should really be using full PPE, including N95s, uh, caps, uh, face protection, so eye protection, um, gowns, gloves, and shoe protection, et cetera. Next slide. I won't go into detail with this, but these uh, were the published guidelines that were available from different societies. Probably uh, the ones that have the most extensive guidelines would be uh, the ENT uh, UK guidelines. Um, they've really kind of published several things even more recently um, since we've published our paper uh, that have come out from them. Also the Government of Canada, you can look things up um, in the respiratory therapy and speech therapy. Uh, literature, but basically it's all these same ideas that you should wear full PPE, you should limit time with cuff deflated, you should try and um, enhance decannulation protocols um, and keep closed circuits as much as possible. Next slide. And so just to kind of sum it all up in post-tracheostomy care, because there's not a lot of recommendations, um, what most of the literature would recommend um, because LTACs or the long-term acute care facilities are quickly being overwhelmed by COVID-19 patients. Um, most hospitals have had to sort of create their own LTACs in-house, um, and then they have to have people that are supporting this, uh, which can be really tricky. So you have to train your people. Um, again, you wanna maintain this closed circuit as much as possible, wear your full PPE, enhanced PPE. You want to minimize personnel as much as possible, uh, particularly during the aerosol generating procedures. So trach changes, inner cannula changes, um, suctioning, those kinds of things. Um, if you're using equipment, um, try to use single use or disposable if, if possible. Um, most places are minimizing inner cannula and tracheostomy tube changes and expediting decannulation protocols. You want to enlist multidisciplinary approach, so get your respiratory therapist, physical therapist, occupational therapist, and speech therapist in early to try and improve the outcomes. Um, and then, you know, airway clearance is really up in the air. Nobody's really published anything about that. Um, it's certainly aerosol generating. Um, swallowing testing is also pretty debatable, and I didn't find anything in the literature about that. Um, and then inline nebulizers are preferred unless the patient is on a capping trial, in which case inhalers uh, with a spacer is preferred. Next slide. And so since our recommendations have been published, like has been said multiple times, uh, we have really a living document. So there's significantly more data available now for review. When I did a quick search uh, yesterday, there are now 87 results. When you look in PubMed, just under tracheostomy and COVID, um, so there's a lot coming out now. So there's a lot of different tracheostomy protocols for COVID-19. Um, they have some different safety uh, boxes and, um, and, uh, and devices that can be used to try and, and mitigate the risks of, of uh, exposure and anesthesia and sedation protocols are out there. Um, so, but just remember to use your core critical care skills and, um, and work as a multidisciplinary team.
Next slide. And so I think the take home points are really remember your, remember your standard critical care, no need to reinvent the wheel, but make small adjustments to protocols that you're familiar with in order to improve safety. However, um, as Dr. Angal had uh, pointed out, sometimes uh, being creative really pays off uh, with some interesting uh, protocols that can be, that can really come in help, uh, handy and be really safe. Uh, consider the local needs when developing your protocols. However, you wanna make sure that your, your institution can pull off the protocol that you're trying to attempt and be consistent, but willing to adapt as new data becomes available. All right. Thank you, Dr. Argento, Dr. Lam, and um, Dr. Angel. You know, I, I see several questions on tracheostomy and many more actually on bronchoscopy that we haven't had the chance to address yet. So <clears throat> let's spend a few minutes um, and address a few of them. Dr. Angel, I see you actually replied to many participants already in the Q&A box. Um, there was one question in the chat room in regards to, to your technique. Um, and the question reads as, how good is the visualization if you keep the ET tube in the same position and not move it up as you would normally do in a non-COVID patient? Dr. Angel? Well, thank you for the question. And, and just to clarify again, this is not a part of the statement because again, at the point that we did the statement, we were just looking into this technique and we have few cases then. We have done a lot more. So obviously we have a, and we have published a little bit more about this and we will continue publishing about this and our results. So, but I have to say the visualization is actually very good. Uh, there are a uh, few places in which you can face a more difficult situation. In particular, there are, those are patients who are more commonly female, short, and, and a little bit on the overweight or heavy side. Uh, in those spaces, if we place a large endotracheal tube, uh, very commonly it's a very tight space, even just to get through the vocal cords and get into those spaces. And once you get into the trachea, maybe a very small space uh, between the tracheal rings and the endotracheal tube. But you have to remember all you need to do, and that's the beautiful part of having the bronchoscope in there. You just need to see the tip of the needle getting in and the wire. You don't need to have the entire needle uh, going through the uh, through the trachea. So with that, again, that will be the difficulty on those patients. But for the vast majority of the patients, uh, we were even doing this technique before COVID, uh, just like a few months earlier, and not for anything related with COVID, just for a different situation. But I feel that the visualization and the ventilation of the patient are actually so much better with this, especially on the patients in the most of them where you can have a good space between the endotracheal tube and the trachea, you continue the ventilation, you don't mess with the ventilator and the endotracheal tube. And, and so for the most part, it's very good. However, in the ones that you may have a situation where you cannot do this, uh, for sure you can do the, again, remove the endotracheal tube back to the subglottic space. I still remember it will be important to paralyze the patient and, and try to minimize ventilating the patient uh, with the cough deflated as much as possible. Thank you. So would you say that it's fair to state that people should use the technique that they are proficient in and proficient with, and uh, as long as they, ex they respect the techniques for minimizing aerosolization. Uh, I'm pretty biased on that. All <laughs> right. I, I have to say, I have done, again, for 20 years, I have done the standard technique. Uh, and I have done, again, a lot of tricks now with this technique. Each one has a lot of values. Uh, 
to me again is the and this is the point is you don't all you are changing is the way that you visualize you still do the same trick exactly the same uh, is the way that you visualize and and it's up to again how comfortable are you uh, going through the mouth and getting into the vocal cords or going through the endotracheal tube uh, fortunately a lot of the people now is trained just to do bronchoscopies to LMA and to through airways so they are not very familiar going around the endotracheal tube and becomes difficult but I have to say and again with Carla we talked about this before is you just have to be patient do the first thing tracheostomies take four or five minutes in doing it and then you can get to your own answer what to do I don't think that this gets to a level of discomfort all you there's not much to lose you just say okay can I get through here or not you don't risk anything especially on the pacing and the benefits especially in a situation like this are huge because you can keep ventilating very hypoxemic patients completely and minimizing the risk of again producing aerosol during the Thank you Dr. Angel there is a very relevant question in regards to post-tracheostomy care so when do you question for the entire panel when do you consider to go back to trach mask um, or capping trials after one or two negative tests and if so what kind of samples tracheal aspirate question mark um okay. oh, go ahead Carla. Okay. that's okay go ahead christine that's go ahead no i'm not sure anybody really knows i think that's really been um locally dependent. Um, most places, if they're looking to swab and get them negative before attempting these kinds of things, aim for two tests, um, but they don't seem to specify whether it's uh, nasopharyngeal swabs or lower respiratory testing. I don't know if you do things differently, Carla. Well, you know, it's a real challenge because, again, the patients who have gotten to the point they're trait, they were probably the most acutely ill and they shed virus for a long time. And so, even when they're in hospital and they're going to, they're independent from the ventilator and they're on the trach collar, you know, right now you try to minimize aerosolization to the healthcare workers around them wearing all the proper gear. But the issue is these folks, uh, patients will shed for weeks. I mean, weeks and weeks. So you may not see negative tests while they're in their immediate aftercare once they've been liberated from the ventilator. And the thing that's the phenomenon that's happening in a lot of our hospitals is that the LTACs are so full that these patients are surviving their COVID, they're getting trached, they're going out of the ICU, but they don't have a place to go outside of the main hospital because the LTACs are overwhelmed. And so you become sort of a mini LTAC of your care patients for trach. And I think the key points are to make sure that you're giving them proper humidification. We try to accelerate their downsizing uh, to decannulation because that will negate all the other issues. And a lot of these patients can successfully downsize quite quickly and then go speaking valve and cap and then decannulate. So we, we have been able with weekly meetings, we round on our trach patients twice a day, the respiratory therapist, and we move them forward to uh, decannulation much faster that way. Thank you, Dr. Lamb. There is one question regarding uh, the risk of transmission to healthcare workers. That was actually asked um, after the bronchoscopy presentation and um, after the trach as well. So I know uh, lots of the suggestions that are mentioned in all these statements um, that are published online are really based on extrapolation from the 2003 outbreak. Um, so far, what have we learned from 
the 20 from COVID-19. Um, are there any reports yeah. on the risk of transmission transmission with a bronchoscopy and with a tracheostomy to the healthcare workers? Um, there was one, uh, before you answer, there's actually one comment from um, one participant saying that, you know, there are many expert panel reports out there, but what is the actual evidence? So uh, eager to, to hear that. Uh, who's going to take this one? So I'll tell you the... Uh, Dr. Angel. So the, the, the issue again in doing the, doing the tracheostomies and the risk of, again, the infection to the bronchoscopies, uh, that's obviously an area that was of significant importance to all of us uh, because, again, we were dealing with such a large number of patients. So this is one of the things that Carla was mentioning, the positivity of these patients. These patients are really, really positive for a long, long time. But there is uh, one of the areas that is going to be really important to answer. And again, we hope that in our institution, like many other institutions, that they are probably did a lot of bronchoscopies on these patients. But we have, again, obviously close to 150 samples of these patients when we did this. Many of the patients on the conventional test that we do for testing for uh, COVID, that test is not detecting that there is viral replication. It's just detecting that there is particles of the virus. Okay. And now there is data emerging that very often, again, you keep having these particles of the virus and the virus was not replicating. And even there is data now coming that early in the ICU, even when the patients were the sickest with the systemic inflammatory response, the virus was not alive at that point of view. So that's a lot of things that we need to answer. Because we don't know, obviously, I'm not going to recommend that we can go and have somebody with a positive test and say, oh, no, no, those guys yeah, are not infectious. But the, it doesn't mean that a positive test is a live virus that is replicating uh, on that part. So, and in terms of our risk, we now we have more data on this. We measure, uh, during many of the procedures, we were measuring the production of respirable particles. Uh, so we have a, a device that can measure with light photogens, uh, all the particles that are released from less than one micron up to again 20 microns. The ones that we breathe is usually before four and 10. So we measure this in a lot of our cases before, during and after the procedure. And after again, patients that were with a three collar, uh, we did it the same thing. So we can again say that you are very careful in the way that you produce and you minimize open the circuit and paralyze the patient there were no significant increase in respirable particles on these spaces. So even in the consensus, like, again, we mentioned before, um, that you increase up to four times when you do a tracheostomy, the amount of particles that are released. Uh, the data, again, that we are looking, if you are careful on the way that you do the tracheostomy, is being minimized. And we happily can say that, again, on the 206 bronchoscopies done in our institutions, with six of us doing all of them, we all tested negative for antibodies and for COVID after 12 weeks of doing this. So in some way, the technique is not approved that it didn't happen, but if the risk was four times doing everyone and you do 200 and still no one of the six members get a positive antibody test, I think that there is some merit that the, what we prove with measuring the particles and the results that we have, you can truly minimize the number of that. Now, the other point is, Maybe that the virus wasn't that infectious, and we are collecting again in our samples. We have all of that data. We are looking for live virus, and in the next probably six or two eight weeks, we will be able to answer that question a little bit. 
Thank you, Dr. Angel. There is um, one more question that I think is very relevant. There are many, many very relevant and probably won't get to all of them, but this one, it's um, directly applicable in practice. So it applies to both to bronchoscopy and tracheostomy actually. So is it recommended to perform, I'm sorry, that's not the one. Um, is um, testing recommended prior to bronchoscopy or trache if the patient has already tested negative at the same admission? I think uh, at least at our institution, I don't know that there's any data to support it, but at our institution, it's within 72 hours, you need a, a negative test. Um, and so that's what, that's what we've been doing. For us, for the tracheostomy question, again, we start doing tracheostomy uh, at day one. Uh, so, and we did uh, over 104 tracheostomies with a median of seven or eight days. So very early trachs and all of those patients uh, probably were positive. So we did not retest uh, for tracheostomies. With that being said, for bronchoscopies, for sure, we are testing uh, everybody for elective bronchoscopies. Yeah, sorry. My answer was for bronchoscopy. For tracheostomy, we're not testing. Agreed. Perfect. I'm realizing it is um, 418. And, you know, mm -hmm. as, as we're... Have, we have to end the webinar. I'm reflecting on what I personally learned. And I actually remember the beginning of the pandemic when there was a lot of fear, rumors. Uh, and to quote the WHO director general, however, you know, our greatest assets are the facts, reason, and solidarity. On a, on a personal note, I'm so happy to see the collaboration um, among three societies in generating two expert panel reports that uh, follow a rigorous literature search and a consensus methodology based on limited data that's available to date. And as uh, Dr. Argento mentioned, the data continues to emerge. We understand that the published evidence to date is scarce and the recommendations discussed in these statements um, and Review today may, may change in the months to come as more studies are coming out. Um, so please stay tuned and visit our Chess COVID-19 webpage for updates. I do wanna take a minute to thank all the panelists for joining us today and for sharing their expertise and reviewing the statements, uh, for taking time away from their practice to share with you their wisdom. So thank you all for joining us. Please, please stay well and have a safe summer. Appreciate it. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.